Ronananian. What did you do in the 50s and the 60s? You built muscle cars, you built hot rods. It began in the late 40s and then after World War II, and that contributed to it also. You know, that was where a lot of performance packages, a lot of the guys who were maintaining the bombers came back trying to make cars go faster. After six hours of school, I had enough of the day. I hit the radio dial and turned it up all the way. I got a dance. Car doctor. It does. What that tells me is, I don't want to tell you this, you're going to get upset. Oh, no. It's in the trans. No. Yeah, I know. See, I could tell. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now... Very interesting, but it was no Mikhail's Navy. Here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls, answer your questions, solve your problems. That's what this radio show is all about. I have proof, and I'm going to talk about it in this in this first segment, that this radio show needs to exist just for this very, very reason. Uh, more information about this radio show, too, I should point out at cardoctorshow.com. And uh, we welcome a few more affiliates across America today, and we're glad to have you guys with us. And uh, thanks for being part of the growing Car Doctor family, the rocketing Car Doctor family. It's uh, so I'm pretty soon we'll be able to afford to, um, I don't know, lunch. Oh, we already do lunch. So, but uh, maybe we'll afford dinner too. Um, but uh, the fun continues. <sighs> Proof the radio show needs to exist. And I, I thought of it like this because I didn't know any other way to explain it. To my kids of all people, okay? The littlest Anian unit, she's out in uh, Pittsburgh this weekend, and she's, she's having the oil changed on her car. She's out there for a while. So I said, you know, just stop it at a local Ford dealer. How hard could this be? And, and get the oil changed, all right? So she goes into the quick lube lane. She made an appointment during the week. She goes into the quick lube lane and, and you know, asks to have the oil changed. And the service writer, assistant, whatever she was, um, starts arguing with her about what kind of oil to put in the car. And Rachel's telling her, no, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be synthetic. Put synthetic in the car. It's a 2014 Ford Escape. It's got a turbo unit on it. Uh, you know, it's got higher mileage now. It's got a buck 25 on it, I think. And, you know, dad always says synthetic. And the woman just tells her point blank, well, your father doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a complete waste of money. And, yeah, I know, Tom's looking at me. And I just said, you know, you, you try to avoid these cat fights where you can because you just, you know, you're, you're going to go in and, I mean, you're just going to use an elephant gun to kill a tsetse fly. They're just not going to get it. And you just, listen, just ask her for synthetic oil. I don't want to go into the whole dissertation. But I said to myself, I said, you know, this is why the radio show exists. And I explained it to Rachel afterwards because she called up and she says, so what's the difference in oil? And I said, you know, it's a fair question. And I said, the fact is we don't really talk about for all the things that we talk about changing oil in this country. We don't talk about the difference between conventional and synthetic and, and where or when or why you might not use it. And what's some of the determination? So there's three kinds of oil, all right? There's conventional, which has been around since they found dinosaurs. There's synthetic blend, 
which actually came from my knowledge and memory synthetic blend came after we started using synthetic it was conventional synthetic and then synthetic blend synthetic is a man-made molecularly well, i could say that word today molecularly balanced formula all right all the molecules are even size it is a um, it is a much finer and um, higher standard type of oil it resists breakdown it does um, a, a great deal many things better than conventional oil does it cost more sure absolutely but look at look at what we're asking it to do and we're also increasing the drain interval all right, I'm not going to get into the drain interval debate here. That's, that could go on for the next two years, never mind two hours. Conventional is okay. Some engines specifically call for synthetic. And the most important piece of the puzzle is you need to check your owner's manual, and you, know, you need to look and say they'll, they'll say in some cases synthetic blender synthetic, but more importantly they talk about the API American Petroleum Institute rating to make sure it meets their rating system and the manufacturer spec, which can be given out in a variety of different forms depending upon the manufacturer. To my knowledge, a 2014 Ford Escape 2-liter turbo requires synthetic blend. But when you look at the price difference between synthetic blend and synthetic and the fact that you're getting that much better a grade or type of oil, you're spending an extra 5 bucks to get the best. All right, so the, and I looked at the invoice that came in from the Ford dealer this morning. She, she sent it to me so I could see what they did. It's a difference of, even if it's $10, it was a $98 synthetic oil change. All right, so we're going to do a $98 oil change or an $88 oil change. What are we arguing about? All right, we're going to go longer with full synthetic. Here's the thing you have to think about or be aware of and, and, and be mindful. Conventional oil is going away. And I think I mentioned this a couple of shows back, but we just noticed now the manufacturers, the supply houses, are slowly phasing out conventional oil because our choices are limited to either synthetic blend or synthetic. And in certain viscosities, there's no more, synth there's no more conventional. They're, they're substituting synthetic blend at the same price. It's the same price point. So, you know... If you're in the business, God bless you, thank you, do your job. Read the owner's manual. Explain to somebody why the oil they're using may or may not be right or wrong. But don't just come out with an argument that says, well, it's wrong. Your father doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I hate the fact that I have to hide because I'm a mechanic. I can't tell anybody. You know, it's, it's just, it, it stinks. And there's a couple other words I could use, but it's family radio. It just, you know, the worst thing you can walk into another repair shop and say in this industry, it seems, is, my mechanic said. Well, I, you know, I have news for this lady. This, this, this young lady's mechanic is her father, and he's been turning wrenches for 43 years, and I've probably forgotten more than you remember or know. And the fact is that synthetic is the way to go. Synthetic got the car to 125,000 miles, and synthetic will get the car another 100,000 miles. And why argue? Why have this argument? Just put in what the kid's asking for. You know, if anything, it's overkill. Great. Let's take overkill. Would you, let, me, let, me, let me think about this now. Would you want to put 
something in a vehicle that's going to extend its life, cost a little bit more money, and possibly give better value and service and operation of use and reliability to a young driver? Or do you want to put in the cheapest thing you can get and hope that they somehow squeak their way through so that the car has a, 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 a fatal issue that's that, that they have to replace that car prematurely before it's time? Let's think about that now. Which way do we want to take that? So she ended up with synthetic, and somehow she survived, and the car's happily on its way. But I, you know, that's what this radio show is here for. That's why it's here. It's here to answer those simple, direct questions. And if you're out there and you're selling oil changes at the counter of a dealership or a repair shop, you need to address why the oil is right or wrong, and you need to address, uh, you know, beyond just, well, just because your mechanic said it, it's wrong, because that's not how it works. All right. There's good and bad in independent repair shops. There's good and bad in dealerships. It's it's just a matter of you know who's got the skill set, who's got the knowledge, and who's continuing to keep up on training. Tom. Well, first of all, whatever happened to the customer is always right. But second of all, you know, whenever I go in for an oil change and it's not at your place, obviously, um, the first thing they do is they look at me funny when I say I want full synthetic, and it's like, you know, this vehicle here has just about two hundred thousand miles on it. It's never had anything but but synthetic in it, and right. my same with my daughter's car, which is my old car, which has almost two hundred and thirty thousand, and right. it's never had anything. And it's like, guess what? It works. So just do what I'm asking. The only thing I can think of is, and the only saving grace I can give the service writer at the counter, at the dealership, or the repair shop is, they're so used to being browbeaten by people that some people listen. For some people, ten bucks is a lot of money. Ten bucks. Ten bucks in my life. Ten bucks is an egg sandwich and a cup of coffee, and I gotta go. I'm in a hurry. Give me my hat. I, you know, it just, it's just, and I'm not saying I'm frivolous with money, but there just comes a point where what will I use to keep the car safer on the road? I'm, I'm floored that, you know, I look at the price of quick lube oil changes. I'm raising the price of my oil change because the labor's getting more intensive. There's more shields to take down. There's more screws to take down. It's, it's, it's not a simple pull it in, drain the oil, drop the filter, and go anymore. A, a, an oil change legitimately can take a half hour. You know, if, if, if a repair shop is in the 100 to $110 an hour range to survive in whatever part of the country they're in, and I get it, some parts of the country are in, are in, are in $75 range labor rate, and I've heard stories of $60 an hour labor rate, but I, I also hear stories about $125 an hour labor rate in an independent world. We're not even getting into the dealer land. You know, the complexity of the car is what predicates what things cost. And the complexity is only increasing. It's not decreasing. And you want to try and keep the car going as long as you can without having to invest another fifty dollars or $60,000 to replace the car. $30,000 cars are entry level. $40,000 cars are now mainstream. $50,000 cars, it's not hard to hit. It's not hard to hit that number. Heck, we were looking at F-150s. I had this conversation with someone the other day. He came in. We just ended up putting about six grand into his seven-year-old F-150. And I said, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this. I said, are you prepared for all this? He says, I'm prepared to do this and more. He said, because I priced out a new one, and this is a base work truck, $62,800 for an F-150 4x4 that he's going to just beat the heck out. He goes, $62,000. It's a lot of money. Put synthetic oil in it. You're better off in the long run. Well, you know, you always say develop a relationship with your mechanic. 
I've got a relationship with the dealership up near the house. There's a brand new oil change place near the house. I just started a relationship with them. They like me from the simple standpoint where they'll they'll say, we need to do this, and I'll just say, okay, or, or maybe I'll question it. But I don't sit there and argue, and I don't necessarily sit there and argue the price, and I ask them to explain it to me, and then we have an intelligent conversation, and that's how it should be. The guys at the dealership, every time I bring something there, they come they come back and they sound like they're apologizing. It's like, dude, there's a lot of labor here. I get it. Yeah, just just get it done. Well, it's, I think you know. I think I think in all fairness, the guys in the dealership have the problem because somebody just laid out the sixty two thousand dollars for a car, and now you're trying to get them to do some maintenance and take care of it, and people are gun shy because you know people don't want to accept where they are in life and that's a study of human emotion and i've said this for years auto repair is a study of human emotion and i know i'm going long this segment i apologize that's okay but but you know it's not your fault that i had to spend sixty two thousand dollars on a car it's going to be your fault when you don't take proper care of my sixty two thousand dollar car do the synthetic oil change keep me safe on the road let me get two hundred thousand miles out of it and then have to replace it all over again. Well, and, back, and, and, and that's the game. Back in January, when I had to put $3,000 into my daughter's car, you know, they, they looked at me for a minute and they said, you know, this is a nine-year-old car and, and it's got over 200,000 miles. And I said, yeah, and she's got two more years of vet school to go and then a, possibly a third year. I said, I need to get at least two years out of this car, possibly three. I said, and the difference is I hand you three grand now or I hand you $500 a month. So. Right. I'm not handing you $500 a month, you know, plus the increased insurance. Let's rock. And right. they just said, okay, makes sense. You know, like I always say, I want to be 17 again, not happening. I don't want to spend any money on a car. That's not happening either. 855-560-9900, Ron and Annie, the car doctor. Back right after this. Don't call us. That's right. If you call and we're not live, you can leave a message and we'll call you back to get you on the air with Ron. 855-560-9900. Speaking of Ron, here he is. Hey, welcome back. Let's get on over and talk to Phil in Vermont. Phil, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Good afternoon, Ron. Yes, sir. I called you last week about my 2011 GMC and you talked about the loose wire maybe for the plow and stuff and I checked all that then I had the mechanic check the um, the um, um, it's firing on all the cylinders and stuff like that but that's not my issue today okay. today I got a 2007 um, Chevy Malibu and twice my wife had to have it towed and sometime it will start and and other times it won't start it's okay. been you can go out there 30 times, it'll start, then all of a sudden it won't start. Is it and a, I got it to dealer now, and they did a continuity check on everything they could, and they think they got it narrowed down to uh, one of three modules. Right. But it's not throwing any codes or nothing. Right, BCM, PCM, um, and I forget actually what the third one. Oh, instrument, it'll be inside the instrument cluster. Uh, when it goes into this no crank, no start, any warning lights on the dashboard? Does the odometer happen to say error? It does not. It does not. But at first, everybody thought it was the, because uh, I had it at another garage first, they thought it was the anti-theft thing because that light did come up. No. So let's let's talk about how would we diagnose this from scratch. The, the problem with cars today and something of this caliber is it's too easy to assume it's a bad starter. So sometimes what you have to do is you have to set it up where you'll go down to the starter solenoid wire, 
the wire that actually engages the solenoid and wire in a 194 side marker bulb, just something so that when you turn the key on and to the crank position, that bulb lights, all right? What we're trying to do is prove power to the starter, to the solenoid, to see if, it, if it'll crank for that, all right? Now keep and that was done. Which, what was done? What you just said, because that was at the first garage on J and M Auto. They they re did all that and proved that was good. Okay, they so they caught it. They caught it in the act when it would go into a no crank. Yes. Okay, and when it was in a no crank, did they happen to scan for codes? Um, no, he didn't get to it in time. He couldn't. It, it didn't show up. Nothing. It fixed itself. Right. Well, did he scan for codes anyway? He did, and it shows absolutely nothing. Okay, so there's no there's no communication loss. So he right. so you're telling me he caught it in the act, he tapped into the he tapped into the signal line down to the starter, and it had power or it had no power. It had power. It had power. Well, if the mm -hmm. if the starter had power to it, and it's grounded through the block. And the ground coming off the block is good. Why wouldn't we think it's a bad starter? Uh, I don't know that. He he told me he proved because he wanted to replace the starter, but he had to prove it to himself. He said that the starter was good, and he did. Well, something doesn't make sense there, Phil. In that, in that he's saying that if if the bulb lit going down to the starter feed. All right, if the bulb lit, it had power. If it had power, if it had ground, the starter's bad if the starter's not engaging. Sit tight, Phil. Let me pull over and take this pause, and uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more detail when I get back. 855-560-9900. Ron and Annie, the car doctor, coming back right after this. Don't go away. Car doctor, I just want to bang on the drum all day, and sometimes I want to bang on. Well, that's another story. Phil Vermont, you're still there, sir. Yes, I am. So let's just recap. The previous shop hooked up a test light or some sort, some form of a bulb, and he said he turned the key, and the bulb lit. Well, I'm, I might not have it exactly correct how he did it, but he said he proved that the starter and the solenoid was good. Okay. But I, I don't know the exact procedure, but he said he proved it to himself because originally he wanted to replace the starter, but he didn't feel comfortable doing that until he proved it. Okay, so then he must have he must have not had power going to the starter, and then he's assuming that the starter itself is good based on that. So you took it out of there, and you took it over to the dealer, and the dealer's looking at it, but the problem hasn't occurred for them, correct? Well, well what happened down there was I brought it down to the GM dealer, and I dropped it off, and I went to start it just for the heck of it before I put the keys in the box, and it wouldn't start again. Okay. And they went out the next morning, and it popped right off, and they hadn't been able to get it. And then they said they couldn't change parts if, if they didn't know what it was. Well, they can't. So they and, and, and I'm going to tell you the exact same thing, but I'm going to also tell you that if the next moment that you know somebody worked on the car had started, the first thing anybody should have done was at least scan all modules for fault codes. 
they do retain history. You'll see a communication fault. At least it'll give you an idea. Is there a communication fault here? Um, I'm not discounting what the first mechanic did as far as proving the starter good, bad, or otherwise, but if I'm not the attending physician and I didn't see the test the way it was run, you know how many times people describe how somebody did something wrong to me and I'm listening to what they say and I just go do it my way and prove the part's bad anyway? Um, I, you know, at, at this point, all the dealership can really do is scan codes. It's, and what we're trying to get around the long way around the barn to tell you is that the starter is not just a simple turn the key, a starter uh, relay engages the starter solenoid to crank the starter over. There's a powertrain control module or the engine computer, the PCM. There's a BCM, a body computer module that's involved. And there's probably two others in that circuit having to do with engaging the starter and getting it to work. That's why I say if someone scans for codes, do they come up with any sort of communication faults? If there's a U140 in it, U140 is a communication fault typically found on the BCM when this problem happens. If it does, and what's very, very common with these cars is they do go through BCMs. They're, it's it's not uncommon for a body computer to fail on these cars, but you got to catch it in the act. But Well, that's what he's saying. That's why he's keeping it, because he's already got three hours into it, and they did all kinds of continuity tests, and now okay. he said he's got to catch it in the act again. He's got some little USB drive or something he's going to keep right, right. there, he's, so when he, he tries it, he, he can he's catch it in the act. He's probably plugged into the OBD2 port under the dashboard. He's looking at pins 6 and 14. There's a 2.5-volt signal in each of those lines, and he's looking to see do they stay consistent or strong, or do they start to flake out? And if they flake out, then we've got to go and find the reason why. That's The 2.5-volt signal that comes out of that OBD2 connector, sometimes I tell you guys that OBD2 is not just for scanning codes. There's a lot more to it nowadays. Um, those two, That 2.5-volt signal on each of those lines, 6 and 14, is going to show or prove whether or not you've got network communication. You ever have a bad phone in the house, Phil? Yes. Okay, and it just took a while to find it because you had to catch it in the act, but that one phone would pull down the whole network? Mm-hmm. Same thing, different model. It's just That's just the way cars are today. There's no... There's there's no you know there's no magic pill here. It's it's got to be caught in the moment. It's got to be, and that's why I keep saying you know when you bring your car into the shop, you got to make sure the shop can deal with it and catch it in the act. Why'd the first guy ever you know stop working on it? Was it something he just couldn't? He just didn't want to stay with it, or he just you well just, he he was seemed to think that the um, ignition had to be reflashed or whatever, and he he was convinced that it was probably needed a new key a new ignition switch or the keys reprogrammed so he and he's not set up to do that. Okay. So he recommended I bring it down there. Yeah. All right. Well, you got to now you got to wait because now that I think the dealer's on the right path. I think he's got the right approach to it from what you're describing but to I me. I talked to him this morning. They didn't mention that the, each one of the modules had a memory. I wonder why that is. Well, I don't know. I wasn't the one talking to him, but I, you know, did they did they at least scan for codes? I'm sure they did. Oh, yeah, they went through the whole right. scenario, and they just couldn't get nothing. Right. Well, and, and you know what? Sometimes if a, beast, if, if a module is bad, sometimes it won't hold memory, but sometimes if it does, it will. So, But at least if they're scanning it for codes, that's at least the starting point. you got to wait, kiddo. There's nothing more you can do. You're going to have to give them some time and let them do what they have to do. They're on the right path, but don't be surprised if they come back and they tell you that this is a BCM, a body computer, very common fault on those vehicles. It'll require replacement and reflashing 
and um, that's what it's going to take to fix it. So good luck to you. Keep me, keep me in mind. Call me next week. Let me know what uh, ends up fixing this. Stephen in San Diego, 13 Ford Explorer, waiting there very patiently. Stephen, how can I help you, sir? You're on with the car doctor. Hi, Ron. Yes, sir. I've got this uh, 2013 Ford Explorer Sport. I've had it since new, and it's always been serviced at the Ford dealer, but uh, I've been having problems with this PTU, power transfer unit. Right, yep. Um, it's got too hot. The oil's gone bad, and it's... Uh, uh, lunched itself. I replaced it. The dealer wanted too much money to do that, so I did it myself. Okay. And uh, it wasn't much fun, but it's on there. It's working good. However, in the process of doing that, I seem to have broken the steering lock, and I don't even, I can't even find where it is, or how I may have uh, damaged it, and what to do about it. Well, when you when you when you did the PTU, Stephen, you took out the steering rack you I, I, i'm trying to think of how you got from one end of the car to the other so to speak i didn't take out the steering rack i, I never touched the steering the only thing i did is i took off the uh, passenger side wheel including the upright and the drive shaft to pull that out the transfer case right so right. i could switch it out and that's the only time i touched the steering well the steering the steering lock mechanism from what i recall is in the top part of the column Right. It's all done up there. Now, it's possible that something's not broken. It's possible that this is usually solenoid-driven, and the solenoid is just not being actuated because maybe the solenoid's stuck. Maybe the solenoid doesn't have proper signal. But you did a very mechanical repair, and I'm trying to think of how you got to the point that you, how what you did would affect the PT would 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 affect the steering wheel lock. It's just a it's just a little lock finger that comes out and snags a a notch in the in the column so it doesn't rotate. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, on a 13, have you looked? Have you pulled down the knee bolster and looked there beneath the steering wheel? Yeah. No. Um, take a look at that. If you can get your hands on some service information, that'll help you. Obviously, but I sort of recall there's a. Why do I think there's a ring plate? There's a there's a lock plate there, and there's just a lock mechanism that it has to latch into. But again, I don't see where it's connected to what you did. I think it's more coincidence than anything else. Not, it's, it's odd that when I because I, the the keys weren't in the car when I was doing the work underneath. Right. But I was pulling the steering rack when I was wrestling off the uh, the wheel and the the hub. I was pulling the steering rack, and I'm thinking back, and yeah, that shouldn't have moved. It should have been locked in without the keys in the ignition. Well, it, let's 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 back up into this a different way. If you've got the keys out of the ignition now, does the steering column lock? No. Okay. How do you know the column wasn't broken before you did the PTU? It's a it's a possibility. It's not my car. It's my wife's car. I right. hardly ever drive it. Right. Cause that's what I'm thinking. I'm okay. Thinking, I'm thinking it was broken beforehand, and you just happened to welcome to the world of auto repair, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is why. You know what? People don't understand. This is why we road test everything. We road test everything before and after the repair. We make notes, um, even go so far as to take pictures because we're never quite sure. You know, was the chip in the glass before we worked on it? After we worked on it? When did the ABS light come on? And that type of thing. So, okay. Um, but you know, if you need to, Ron at CarDoctorShow.com, take my email. And if you send me the 17-digit VIN, if you can't find a picture of where this is at, I'll do some digging when I get back to work on Monday, and uh, I'll see what I come up with, and I'll shoot you. That'll something. be much much appreciated. I'll, I'll right. take a look where you said. Now I know where it is and how it works. I'll have a play with it. But uh, maybe I didn't break it, so yeah, that's good. Ma- ma- I didn't screw up. Yeah, maybe you didn't break it. But you can't tell your wife, listen, how come you didn't notice the, pe- the, the steering wheel? <laughs> you can't do that, man. I'm telling you right now, it's just, you know, you got to go, honey, you know, it's... 
Because trust me, it'll be well. And you know what she's going to tell you? That's what I have you for. I, yeah. All right. It's that's why she's got you. You're the mechanic. Remember that. So, all right. All right, sir. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero. Well, you can't, Mikey. I mean, you just can't. Oh, you know, honey, you broke your car. I didn't break the car. The car's a piece of junk, and then you end up buying a new car for them. That's the way it works. Eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. The car doctor's coming back right after this. <laughs> Welcome back. We're on the name of the car doctor. Let's go over and talk to Rebecca in Minnesota, Western Minnesota, which I guess is different than Eastern Minnesota, but she's in Minnesota. Rebecca, how can I help you? Well, I need a car that doesn't exist. And my sister-in-law, who's a big fan, tells me, and by the way, thank you for the call. I feel very honored. She says, you probably know better than I do whether or not the car exists. Okay. What are we looking for? We're looking for a 2018 Jeep Liberty with a backup camera and uh, lane change warnings. Of course, they stopped making the Jeep Liberty about half a dozen years ago, and I haven't been able to find anything with that kind of ground clearance. That's the most important point. Uh, that kind of front seat, that kind of back seat, that kind of uh, inside storage that's at a reasonable price and doesn't use too much gas. Um, I have to cope in western Minnesota basically with uh, snow drifts, icy conditions, and uh, whiteouts, things like that. My car buying for the past several years has consisted of saving up and then buying a used sedan with front-wheel drive and no more than 30,000 miles on it. And within five years, I'll have run it up to 150, and then I want to be done because I've got to have reliability right. driving in those conditions. Right. But, man, would I like a car with better ground clearance. And it seems like they're just not making them with as much ground clearance as a Jeep Liberty since the Jeep Liberty. Yeah, the Jeep Liberties are gone, what, um, nine years now, if I'm thinking right? Mm-hmm, 2012. Gone. Yeah, they've been gone a while. Uh, and... Like an avalanche is close, but they don't make those either. Right. A pickup won't do it because uh, I don't have the driving skills with a pickup. Uh, they're not usually front-wheel drive. They're all-wheel drive right. or four-wheel, which is not my thing. And they're expensive, and they're gas guzzlers. That's not going to meet my western Minnesota snowy, blowy prairie needs. Well, and, you know, to the point, you're, actually, you're really doing it right because you're trying to find a vehicle that you fit in that you're comfortable in. You know, and that's and, and that's just so important because a lot of people rush out to buy the car and then you know two weeks later they decide this isn't the right car for me and then that's a whole that's a whole different problem. So Jeep is making a lot of cute cars these days, but most of them don't have the safety features. Right, they don't. Have, they, they think it's for off roading, so they don't give it the backup cam or the blind right. spot. Got to have those. Well, the and back, I'm wondering, you know, is, I've looked at the the Honda CRV and the Toyota 4Runner. They're just not quite tall enough. Is there anything out there, or am I going to have to wait until they start making something again? The only thing I can think of, and I say this all the time, I like the car. I don't know if it has the ground clearance, but I know it has I know it has the blind spot mirrors, and I know it has the backup cam as the Ford Escape. If you looked at that, or is that just too small for you? Um, it, it's the ground clearance issue. Okay. Because uh, in addition to uh, you know driving through prairie roads, I want to be able to drive onto my local lake, which gets buckles and heaves, so you've got to have the ground clearance to get over that. Some of the roads I have to drive on are not paved, uh, so the ground clearance is really an issue there. Are you sure you don't want just a Jeep Wrangler? 
awfully big, awfully expensive. And maybe I'll just save for a few more years and wind up getting that right. um, because they are attractive. But I'm trying to remember, does the Wrangler have both the backup cam and the blind spot warnings? Um, I'm not sure about the blind spot warnings, but the backup cam can be installed in just about any vehicle today. So if it's not factory, it can be installed as an add-on. What That's, about blind spots? Can they be installed? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I would have to say likely. Only because it seems like we can do anything nowadays. We can we can add anything we want to a vehicle. Any any decent aftermarket manufacturer. Maybe the way to approach this is pick a vehicle you like, and then then go Google search. Can I add blinds? Backup cameras, no brainer. That you can you can go to Crutchfield.com and look up rear backup cameras for just about any vehicle, and they'll tell you what what they have, what they don't have. But as far as uh, blind spot safety mirrors, I'm sure that can be added. That's a matter of searching out on the net and finding that they make it for whatever vehicle you eventually settle on. The other thing to keep in mind is watch what you're buying because mechanically you're dealing with you know, 10, 12-year-old vehicles and they're getting older every day. So perhaps you want to try and find maybe a 14, 15 vehicle, spend a little more money, get a little bit better technology, and then you're not going to have a parts issue you know, two years from now, three years from now, should you need it. Let me know what you end up doing. I'm curious. Let's see how this one pans out. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. Let's go over to Dodge in Delaware, 14 Jeep Cherokee. Dodge, welcome to the Car Doctor. Sir, how can I help? How are you? Good, sir. Um, I I know this has been going on for years, but I bought a used 2014 Jeep Cherokee, drove about a year, no problem. And now sometimes I can fill it up with gas. And some days I can't put four gallons in it. Okay. How many miles on this thing? 50, 55,000? 43. Yeah, it's kind of early. So here's the deal, because the clock's going to grab us. Have your mechanic look, all right? Coming off the fuel, the fill neck, there's going to be what we call a recirculation tube. It's basically a hose that runs down the filler neck and plugs into the top of the tank. There's also going to be a hose from the tank to the charcoal canister, all right? Unplug both of them. Go try and put gas in it. If it still won't take fuel, you've now eliminated the emission system, the, the vent system, and you've eliminated the recirc tube. All right, You've eliminated the chance of spider webs and any other restrictions that can get built up in there over time. You've now made the tank a singular tank by itself. If the tank still doesn't take fuel, it's a tank. And it's not uncommon. They do fail. They do have some issues. There's more than a few bulletins out there talking about it. And um, you're going to have to go to Chrysler. Well, not to Chrysler to get a tank, but you have to buy a tank from Chrysler. They're the only source for it that I'm aware of. Do those tests. Call me back if you need more. I'm Ron Anani and the Car Doctor. Hey, if you're like Steven in San Diego this hour with his 2013 Ford Explorer, remember, Motocraft parts for all your repair and maintenance needs. For close to five decades, Motocraft has stood for durability and quality. More information at Motocraft.com. 